Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, the plot thickens. That's the title of an exhibit at the High Museum on the history of printmaking. You can see it on the virtual visit to the High before the museum reopens in July. First, Understanding History by Way of Family Narratives According to the great writer William Faulkner, the past is never dead. It's not even past. How history informs our present, and specifically our self-concept, is at the heart of a new series from Flying Carpet Theatre Company. Adam Copeland is the artistic director of Flying Carpet. He has Zoomed in now with writer, photographer, and filmmaker Pete Candler. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here, as always. You two have been friends since boyhood. What made you decide to create this series of discussions about genealogy and history? Lois, my daughter is at Sheriff Israel's Sunday school at the moment, uh, and she had a project at their Sunday school. It's a synagogue Sunday school, and they had asked the kids to do a family tree. And as I watched her create this very disorganized family tree without that much information, I, I couldn't take it anymore. It was so disorganized that I decided to join one of these ancestry sites on the internet to just as a trial to sort of put it all together in some graphically organized thing. I didn't know that much about my extended family, actually. You know, I, I, I sort of knew about maybe 50% of my great grandparents. And I certainly didn't know where they were from exactly or anything like that. So I, I took it on initially largely just as a help to my daughter. And to be honest with you, I got quite addicted for a stretch of time and found out huge amounts of information about my own family, so much so that every time I would go out to dinner with anybody, I would talk their ear off about it, <laughs> probably to the point of being totally annoying. But I, I couldn't explain it, but I found it to be so meaningful on a bunch of different levels. And 
Pete and I have been buds for a long time and I've been following him on Facebook and watching the way he has wrestled with his own family history made it seem like he was a great guide to help me figure some of this stuff out. So randomly I, I am and said, Pete, you know, what is, what does this all mean? Why do I, why do I care about this stuff so much? And, and that started a conversation between us that has led to developing this series. Ah, Pete, I cannot encourage our listeners enough to visit your website. If for nothing else, then reading your biography, which has raised self-deprecation to an art form, truly an art form, I mean, it is so in the face of everybody who lists their achievements. And um, I, I just got such a kick out of how humble you were. And the better reason to visit your website is to learn about your series of photographs and essays called A Deeper South, which is an unflinching examination of your family's history, which must have been difficult to reconcile. How does learning about your family's history, and much of it is an illustrious one, many Atlantans know your last name readily, how does that inform your understanding of history at large? Well, thank you for that. I'm flattered. I wish I could. I, I wish I could claim humility the way you've attributed to me. But <laughs> I, I've, um, you know, it's. I think part of the strangeness of all of this for me was that I, I do come from a family that has a pretty, a prominent uh, sort of place in Atlanta's history, but the way that history kind of passed down to me was in not even like a Cliff's Notes version. It was more just like a thumbnail sketch. So it wasn't the the version that I had received was pretty thin to start with. And it was pretty startling to me to realize that what I hadn't learned about my family. And I think one of the weird things about about having a family coming from a family whose history is pretty well documented is that you kind of tend to leave that history on the shelf and not seek it out for yourself because you sort of assume that it had already been done and it was there to look into if you ever got curious. So kind of unlike Adam, I didn't have to do a lot of reconstructing in terms of putting the branches of the family tree back together. In fact, I have a book on, um, on my shelf that's a biography of the one Candler that everybody knows. If anybody does recognize the name, they know Asa Candler. His son wrote a biography. And it has a, a fold-out family tree in the back of it. And it all leads up to Asa Candler. And it stops there. There was kind of this sense that all of history was leading up to this one figure. And the book is kind of written a little bit like that. It's pretty hagiographical. 
Coca-Cola is delicious, Pete. <laughs> yeah, well, you I, needn't I, be ashamed of that, Pete. I, I've got one. If, if you were on video, you could see I have one right here. Uh -huh. um, you know, it was, you kind of took it for granted that this work was out there. So when I started to learn, I can tell you the story of how this came about, if you like, but Please. it was, yeah. So I had lunch with a friend of mine here in Asheville, who's a historian. He's, he used to be the director of the Center for Studies of the American South at UNC Chapel Hill. So he's a bona fide historian. And so we met for lunch one day and he said, there's a book that I think you ought to read. And his name is David. And so when David says, there's a book you ought to read, I take it very seriously. So he, he added a little bit ominously, it concerns your family. And the title of the book was At the Altar of Lynching, The Burning of Sam Hose. Oh, dear. And, you know, I didn't feel like this was off to a great start. And I kind of said, I was a little bit apprehensive about what I was going to uncover in this book because I had never heard of Sam Hose. And this was about three years ago almost. I'd never heard of Sam Hose. And then, a few months later, I was sent by a magazine to go cover the opening of the new, what we now call the lynching memorial in Montgomery, and to write a piece about that. And I, I got there, this is sort of a classic Pete move, but I scheduled my trip there and, the, and never bothered to check the days they were open. And it turns out they were I went down on a Monday and it turns out they were closed on that day. So I, I didn't get to visit that day. I ended up staying the next day, but in the meantime, the store was open. So I visited the, the shop, the legacy museum shop and found this book by Philip Dre called it the hands of persons unknown. And it's a, it's basically a history of lynching of African-Americans in the United States. And on page one, is the Sam Hose episode. And on page two is a reference to Alan Candler, who was the governor of Georgia at the time, and not exactly an opponent of lynching. Oh. And I mean, he was an opponent in the sense that he thought mob violence was bad, but he was not exactly aggressive against the practice. And so I think it after I encountered this, I, I went back to that book that, that David had mentioned to me and started to realize that this episode in Georgia's history, this like atrocious, notorious uh, lynching that happened in Noonan in 1899, that I never learned about in school, but was now forever connected with my family history. What was Alan's... Uh, how are you descended from him? You have to go back up a few levels and then over a bit, but he would have been my great, great grandfather's first cousin. So Asa, who was my great, great grandfather's brother, Alan was his cousin. And so they, they had a little bit of a different upbringing. Alan Candler grew up in Gainesville and Asa and his family started in 
Carroll County in Carrollton and then some of them uh, moved to Cartersville and then ultimately Decatur and Atlanta. So it's not a direct line, but it's, um, it's one that really completely upset the received narrative I had, mm-hmm. which was basically reduced to these three brothers, Asa, Warren, and John. And so when I was growing up, I knew of these three as Asa, the bishop, Warren, and the judge, who was my great-great-grandfather, John Slaughter Candler. And that was it. Like that was, there were more sort of mythological embellishments, but that was basically all I ever knew. Hmm. And so, yeah, it was pretty startling to, to find uh, that these figures, uh, my great-great-grandfather comes up in the, the book about Sam Hose. Um, War- Alan certainly comes up a lot. Um, but it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a shock. And so, how do you move forward from there? What have you made of it? I think I have tried to address this history honestly and non-defensively. Because in one sense, there was just so much information that kind of came rolling out once I started digging a little bit deeper that it just was necessary to kind of take it all and and just sort of sit with it for a while and not feel like I have to explain this. So A, it was kind of a lot of processing and it's something that I still am doing. Like I'm still learning things all the time. But to take a couple steps back, not to get too biographic, autobiographical here, but before I moved back to Asheville, I was in an academic position in Texas. And so we moved back to the Southeast in 2013. And I felt like my academic career had truncated me as a person and sort of made me unable to be fully myself just because like the culture of academia really forces you to be so specialized in one particular subject. And yours was? Mine was uh, theology. And I, I taught in a great books program there. But it was a period in my life where I felt like certain things that I had been interested in for a long time, like photography, the arts, and traveling around the South, had been sort of pushed to one side because they were not necessarily directly germane to my academic work. So when I left my academic position and moved back here, I started, before A Deeper South came along, I wrote kind of a a series of essays that were part of the act of me basically trying to put myself back together and and remember these parts of, of who I am going back to my childhood, one of these was trying to reconstruct my own history in terms of the music that I listened to and loved from a young age until, until now. And another part was our family have a, a home on the, in Georgia where we all vacation together for years and there's a little library in there. 
well, well the, my grandparents' books are on the shelf there. And I didn't ever really know my grandparents very well because they both succumbed to Alzheimer's when I was a teenager and then in my, into my 20s. So I never really got to have a, an adult relationship with them. And so I tried to kind of reconstruct the sort of people they might have been based on the books that they had in their library. You are what you read. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think they were necessarily huge readers and that may not be the most accurate way of reconstructing a personality, but it was an experiment. So that when the deeper South project came along, I was already engaged in this work of memory and this work of kind of reconstructing a self from fragments that were either on a bookshelf or in a, you know, a box of cassette tapes in my basement. And so it fit logically into, into this larger interest that I had. It just, it's just that it became much bigger than just about myself. It was connected to my family's history, to Atlanta's history, to Georgia history, and to national history. Pete Candler and Adam Copeland will tell us more about their new podcast series after a short break. You're listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's return to my conversation with director Adam Copeland and writer Pete Candler about their genealogy and history podcast. I think it's remarkable here. Adam, you mentioned that you really knew nothing beyond your great-grandparents' background and very little at that. I identify with that. In fact, on my father's side, I don't even know that much. And essentially what Pete has explained is even though much more is widely known going farther back into the early 19th century about his family tree, each of you had this received history that kind of started at the same point. That is so accurate. And it's, it's actually probably the starting point of commonality for me and Pete was talking about this amnesia that we each had, or, you know, kind of collective amnesia or family amnesia. And that though we came to it from totally different places, and totally for totally different reasons, 
we each had started with that very, very strong sensation and that the process of our searches has alleviated that sense of amnesia to some degree. So you're putting your finger on, in fact, the starting place of Pete and I wanting to even start this kind of work, this kind of conversation, this kind of series. It was actually to address the discomfort that I think maybe neither of us even knew that we had around this sense of amnesia around what the family was, where they came from, how they came to be. Because in, in some small way, it's, it's trying to answer the question, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me, of course, my background, Pete, is far closer <laughs> to that of Adam's Eastern European Jews who emigrated and and my grandparents were pogrom victims, but with them, and and this came to my parents' generation, there was so much pain speaking about what they experienced in Europe that they revealed next to nothing about their past. And I'm intrigued, Adam, with what you have found in genealogy, because I just never imagined there would be anything about my family going back. Those who remained in Europe eventually were killed during the Holocaust. But, Adam, our families found it difficult to talk about because of the pain. Pete, yours is from shame and how we each proceed and how that informs our current selves is tremendous. How will this play out in the curated conversations that Flying Carpet will present? I think in the main, Lois, you've spoken some some truths about at least my sense of our family and why we didn't talk about things. But I, I think one of the other things that I found, and I, I'd be curious Pete's point of view on this too, is that there are, are some generalizations I can make when I, you know, when I look at individuals that I discovered a lot about, why they came, how they came, but that there isn't a hundred percent pure narrative. There isn't, so while there are certainly branches of our family that came from um, very traumatic situations in Eastern Europe, and those traumas continued all the way up through World War II and the Holocaust, and nobody talked about it until I started, you know, digging. And then you would get these little echoes you know uh, an uncle would say yeah my grandfather used to say i don't want to talk about that because they all died in ovens or something like that and you'd think well, how come this never got you know how come nobody talked about this at all so there the, the the idea of the trauma and the pain being passed through for certain but i i also think that there's a very even for the people who achieved generational transformation and success, I think part of it has to do with some of the upsides to 
certain parts of the American narrative, which is that the future is brighter tomorrow, we're here now, especially, I mean, let's be candid, especially for European white people, if you, even, if, even if you came from an oppressed situation, there had been possibility for a certain kind of transformation and opportunity here. Absolutely. So that, I, I, I guess I bring all that up to say, Lois, that in answer to your question, one of the things I think we'll find when people discuss their family histories, and it's certainly true in mine, is that there's no pure narrative. There isn't history so complicated. Some of the reasons people didn't talk about it were X, and some of it they didn't talk about were Y, and in both cases, it still left me many generations removed with not knowing much. What's your take, Pete? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the effective, a kind of comprehensive collective or public amnesia, and even in the family and personal sense, is to erase both the shameful parts and the ennobling stories. And that's certainly true in my case, but it yeah, at, back to your point earlier about being on other sides of this, that forgetfulness can be a survival strategy for some people and some communities, like your own families, perhaps, that there were certain things about the past that we simply don't want to remember. We don't want to remember the experience of being dehumanized or, or, or being killed because of our, our religion or our race. And my experience has been these memories were forgotten because, I don't know, I mean, I'm not sure why, but it's possible that these were shameful because of the pain they caused for other people. Mm -hmm. that, that assumes a certain level of self-awareness that I can't necessarily attribute to generations before me because I'm not sure if that's the real reason or not. I mean, my family is extremely skilled at not talking about things <laughs> and um, you know, playing it close to the vest and all of that. But I think I'm excited to see how this unfolds. I mean, back to your original question, I don't think we know the answer. I don't know how this is going to play out necessarily because there is a, a little bit of unpredictability that's, that's built into it. And certainly the element of surprise is, is always there. And that surprise can be really disturbing or it can be revealing in, in a positive way. And all of it is important in the way that we decide to proceed. Absolutely, yeah. I'm curious, each of you has used the phrase from amnesia to awareness. Is it really amnesia? Amnesia implies something, I think, you have no control over. It's an affliction. But wasn't it a willful suppression or, or repression of memory? Absolutely. And in fact, I, I use the term willful amnesia or deliberate amnesia sometimes because I'll just say this about that. I think there's a reason why this whole project emerged from Atlanta, both my own work and, and what Adam and I are now doing together that 
Atlanta's greatest sort of skill, if we can call it that, is in packaging itself in a way that is serviceable to commerce or financial success. And part of that process going way back to after the Civil War involved a kind of willful forgetfulness of Atlanta's past. Mm -hmm. So when Henry Grady, for example, went to New York and gave this famous speech at Tammany Hall about the New South and how how great a place it was for Northern industrialists to invest in and what a paradise of racial harmony it was. There was some deliberate forgetfulness going on because if we really told the truth about what the South was like for black people in 1886 and Grady's own attitudes towards blacks in the late 19th century are now well known. He was a white supremacist. He, like many of his day, and that is not something you would see on the Grady Monument in downtown Atlanta, for example. But the myth of Atlanta that Grady helped to create became crystallized when Mayor Hartsfield, I think it was in 1948, declared Atlanta as the city too busy to hate. And Atlanta has always kind of prized its busyness, its, its hard work and so forth. But if you're too busy to hate, you're too busy to love, and you're too busy to remember your own past with any seriousness. And so I think that the, the kind of culture of amnesia, willful amnesia, mm -hmm. that Atlanta has basically made a fortune off of has not really served a lot of communities well, a lot of individuals well. I certainly feel like I haven't benefited from that kind of willful amnesia in my own family. And maybe there's sort of a, a mutual influence, both from city to family and family to city in this sense of kind of contributing to and sort of internalizing that kind of willful amnesia. Our nation is in crisis. We are in the midst of a national reckoning in the wake of the most recent murders of innocent people, a national reckoning about race. How can we use genealogy to move forward and improve our country? Pete and I have a hunch, Lois, and, and this is really meant to be a, a pilot program to, so first of all, in answer to your question, I, I will humbly say I'm not 100% sure, uh, or even 50% sure. It's, a, it's such a tough, tough thing. But one of the things that I have found very dismaying throughout our, our conversations about race and ethnicity and all sorts of things in our country is how often we will start the conversation as if things started a week ago, two weeks ago, a month ago. But Pete and my hunch is that when we start talking with people who have wrestled with what has happened to their family over time, we'll hear 
a million and one honest threads that are, are the things that make up our patchwork quilt. And when we hear those things, it's going to be a little if, you know, if we if we talk with people who are themselves the descendants of victims of lynching, when we talk with people who themselves have had historic traumas, when we talk with people who have had uh, amazing come from the old world and come to the, this new place and tremendous successes, we'll get uh, just a, a very dynamic picture that our country didn't start two weeks ago. And I, I, I don't think we're necessarily trying to tackle everything. I think we're, we're really trying to stake out a, a little area that says willful amnesia is a dangerous thing and a great way to start talking about some of the things we share and then some of the things we don't it is through our family histories. In some ways, it's a, a compelling and safe, safer way to talk about some of these issues, I, I think. Lois, I don't know if you know this, but uh, after gardening, genealogy is the number two hobby in America. <laughs> and, but one of the curious things about that is that, you know, and Pete and I have both discussed this at length, to what end? Why is it, in addition to the discovery of our families, how, how can that help us move forward? And I guess that's the little, um, our big hope for this series, this web discussion series where, and I should also say, if you have gone through or any of your listeners have gone through a process of discovery and want to be on the discussion, reach out to us at Flying Carpet Theater. We would love to hear your stories and have you be a part of the conversation. This is meant to be a very open way for people who have, have gone through similar processes to me and Pete to get a chance to talk about what they've learned and help process why it's so important. Well, I have found this conversation just fascinating. Adam Copeland, Pete Candler, I think it's important work you're doing here, and I thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. Thank it's you so much, Great Lois. privilege to talk to you. Pete Candler is a writer based in Asheville, North Carolina. Adam Copeland is the artistic director of Flying Carpet Theater Company. There will be more information on their new web discussions about genealogy and history on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The High Museum will reopen its doors in July, but you can still see their riches with a virtual tour right now. The Plot Thickens is an exhibition about the history of printmaking. The show displays six series of prints, including etchings, lithographs, and woodcuts. The focus is storytelling. 
Claudia Einicke is the High Museum's curator of European art. When she joined me in March to discuss the exhibition, she explained how she came up with the idea and title for The Plot Thickens. It was very simple. I needed to organize and come up with an idea for a good works on paper uh, exhibition, and I looked at our holdings in European works on paper, prints and drawings, and noticed that we have several print series which tell different kinds of stories. They represent different stylistic directions. They are made with different printmaking techniques. And I thought it would be very interesting to do an exhibition around all that because then our visitors could really relate to the works on various different levels depending on where their interest lies. How did you decide which artists to display? It was mainly a question of having a good cross-section, different styles, different stories, different techniques. We have several series that are done by etching techniques. We have only one woodcut series and two lithography series. But on the whole, it was just to get a nice variety Mm -hmm. of different things. The art of screen printing goes back centuries. How does this exhibition highlight the changes in printmaking over the years? I think it's not so much a matter of thinking about a development of printmaking techniques in a linear fashion. I think it is just a matter of artists trying to find different ways of expressing themselves and making their designs so that they can be multiplied, as opposed to a drawing, which is a unique thing. There's only one of them that looks like itself, whereas prints, then you can multiply the impressions and the copies. The more, the merrier. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> you know, you have to think about artists nowadays. You have Facebook, you can post things on Instagram and so on, if you're an artist, even to, you know, to, to promote yourself. But in the past, for an artist to become internationally known, the easiest would be to have multiples because then they could be sold to different parts of the world and... Circulate. Yeah, circulate, that's the word. The first artist we encounter is Eugène Delacroix. His lithographs in this show center on Shakespeare's tragedy of Hamlet. What can you tell us about Delacroix's artwork in this exhibition? It's very interesting because... Delacroix was a romantic artist, and the romantics were very interested in emotional subjects, in dramatic and action-packed kinds of scenes. Delacroix created his illustrations of Hamlet as a portfolio, so not for a book with a printed text, even though, of course, it is based on the text. So he could really choose the scenes that he felt were most interesting, most dramatic, most powerful. Let me explain this. If you have a book and you think about the design of the book, you want 12 illustrations in it, you don't want them all to be from the same chapter or in terms of the play from the same scene or the same act. You want them to be spread out throughout the book. But that's not what Delacroix had to worry about, so that, in fact, half of the illustrations are from Act 3, 
out of five, and the rest are spread out. So it, it was really more about the action that he was looking for. Yes, swept up in the emotion mm-hmm. of what's happening in, in the drama yeah. of that part of the play. His piece, The Ghost on the Terrace, stands out in particular. Can you talk about the crafting of this work? The whole series is made in the lithographic medium. And lithography is in the way it is made. It is closest to direct drawing because the artist draws directly onto the printing stone with a sort of crayon. And then, of course, the process gets very complicated. Those lithographs often look like they could be pencil drawings or crayon drawings. So you have that fluidity of gesture and the ability to create three-dimensional effects with the shading and so on and so forth. So that lends itself then again for something that, well, if you are interested in emotion, in action, that's the best technique to use for it. Another artist in the exhibition Hans was part of the German Expressionist movement. For those unfamiliar, how would you explain that movement in art? I think the um, important aspect is that Expressionist artists are not trying to describe visible reality the way realists or the way straightforward photograph does. They are more interested in showing reality, but showing it through a temperament, as it were, or expressing as well their emotions or the emotion that they want to be part of what it is that they're talking about. It is a much more personal kind of imagery and style than than just saying, well, you know, this is a bottle and let me me draw it as well as I can. But no, if I distort the bottle, then it becomes something really anxious, for example. Yes, and that certainly was in the zeitgeist, in the spirit of the times in which these works were created. Yeah, yeah. we think of the First World War and then the Second World War really turning the world inside out. I think I once heard the most simplistic definition, or maybe it would be kinder to say the most basic definition, was that expressionism is from the inside out. That's the meaning of the term. It's coming out. And yes, indeed, it is about what the artist feels on the inside, not just the surface of reality. Kroos was known for crafting woodcut prints that showcased his love of history. Would you describe some of those that can be found on display at the high? The woodcut medium or process was really favored by the Expressionists, and I think it is because itself can look very crude or powerful because it is created by carving into a piece of wood. And you can imagine that when you have a nice carving knife, you try to go around, make a nice round curve. That's not so easy because there's the grain of the wood that resists a very easy shaping. So that's why it's more difficult to create a lot of 
variation in tone. It's either black or white. There's very little way of putting sort of gray tones in between, whereas in other techniques you can. So it really becomes a a simplified form and therefore very graphic and very strong and expressive. So it it really was sort of felt to be the the, the most appropriate process to use for, for their expressionistic work. Oh, I think they are stunning. Mm-hmm. Works of French artist James Tissot will also be on view. They are really amazing prints. They're, they're etchings, etching and aquatint, I believe, as well, which is a, a special subcategory of etching. They are a series that tells the story of the prodigal son, so the parable, the biblical parable of the prodigal son, but translated from biblical times into Tissot's own day. So the prodigal son is the son of, of a wealthy British merchant who has his wealth from, from maritime trade. But as etchings, they are just, as prints, they're just amazing because Tissot was able to create stupendous realism in the way he creates, very different than what I, what I just exp- uh, explained for expressionism. It's very, very detailed. It's highly, highly realistic. It looks like a photograph, but it has all the detail of a photograph. It has all the differentiation of uh, surfaces. There's a gleaming wood table, gleaming, because it is highly, highly polished. And then a fur collar, very, very different, and you can feel how soft it is. This is possible with the etching technique, but also Tissot, in my book, was one of the greatest etchers. And in a way, we think of Tissot primarily as a painter, and yet he also was a great etcher. And that is not necessarily always the case. Very often, it would not have been strange if you were a painter. You would make designs for etchings or engravings or for some prints. And you would hire a professional printmaker, a professional etcher, because, of course, that's a very specialized skill as well to create the etchings for you. But Tissot, he invented them. He painted some of the scenes. He made the drawings for it. And then he made, actually, the etchings himself. And I think, to me, that's just outrageously amazing. Hearing you describe these works... It brings home how engaging works on paper can be and the wide variety of effect that drawings can Mm -hmm. convey and that these artists achieve. Do you feel that drawings and works on paper are the unsung heroes of visual art? Perhaps so, because they require a little more engagement with the work. When you see a big painting that's colorful and it re- represents something, you can you, you just think of what is represented, perhaps, and, well, how well is it represented? Is it realistic or is it more abstract? But drawings and, and prints, they tend to be smaller and they're black and white. So you for you to appreciate how much work and how much skill is actually in them, you have to think about, oh, yeah, it is black and white, but wait, there are 50 shades of gray in there as well. And those are created with black lines on white paper. Mm. I mean, just 
think about it. It's, yeah. it. it sounds relatively easy if I could, well, I just put some red in there and some blue and then, but no, just, just black and white and yet you have a range of color, really. And because of that intricacy and the scale, the smaller works, they invite you to look closer. And you have to, I think. Sometimes I think that maybe drawings and prints, it is unfortunate that in the gallery we have to put them behind glass and hang them on the wall instead of sitting down, putting it on the table in front of you and just looking at it that way, which of course in a museum is not possible. But still, because they are glazed, we are not so worried about people getting closer. Will you bring up a practical consideration. What are the challenges of displaying works on paper that are hundreds of years old? Works on paper are more fragile than, let's say, oil paintings. That is simply because paper deteriorates when it is exposed to light. There's no way you get around it. So in a museum, we have a rule that a work on paper is shown, I think, for six months out of five years because we want them to last forever. Uh-huh. So we don't show works on paper for very long, usually, and not very frequently. And, of course, if you have works by very popular artists, important drawings or prints, you want to show them more often. But And sometimes we say, okay, well, I'll show it again, but then it'll have to rest for not five years, but maybe eight years before I show it again. My goodness. So we think in terms of accumulated exposure. And the challenge is also in the gallery because it's the light that is the problem or that is the, the damaging factor. We tend to keep the lights in a works on paper exhibition lower, which, you know, sometimes people find, oh, well, it's so dark in here, I don't care for it. You do have to appreciate that there's a reason for it to be dark. It's not because we don't want people to see what, <laughs> what they're looking at. But that also usually is the reason why you don't find paintings and works on paper mixed usually in the gallery because it is difficult to control the lighting in one area and then have it bright for the paintings in another without spilling over into the, into the paper. This show has a wonderful title. What's the significance of the plot Thickens. Well, I was thinking that most of the series, not all of them, illustrate stories that have a plot, like Hamlet. You know, it starts in one place and it ends in another. Or King Lear the same, or even the, the story of the parable son. He sets out and he comes back. So it is about storytelling. And at first I was thinking of a title, something like storytelling or tell me a story and then a a more scholarly subtitle or explanatory subtitle. At one point it occurred to me, well, if I do that, people think it's for children. And it's not that this isn't for children, but but it's not a children's exhibition. And so then, I don't know, I came up with a plot thickens. And in a way, I think it is appropriate too to think, because I'm thinking of these works and talk about them in texts, a series, 
it is not just a single one that tells a story, but actually you have to look at them in series and you also have to look at them as a series and think about um, some of the compositional strategies the artist may have followed throughout the series, not each one separately, each print separately, but as a series. So the plot thickens, you know, the more you think about it in terms of the succession of works or the, the line that runs through them, the more intricate, I hope, the experience also gets. Claudia Heinecke is curator of European art for the High Museum. The exhibition, The Plot Thickened Storytelling in European Print Series, can be viewed as a virtual tour now on the museum website at high.org. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with the Indigo Girls reflecting on their recent album, Look Long. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Special thanks to Stephen Key this week. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash citylights and check out the new City Lights podcast wherever you subscribe. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.